we're going to be studying this morning from Galatians and chapter 6. The letter uh, here that Paul wrote was written for a very clear purpose. And the purpose was to correct uh, incorrect teaching, correct teaching that was a dangerous mindset that had invaded the churches throughout the region of Galatia. Galatia was not a city like Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi. Galatia was a region. And in the region, there were churches, the church at Iconium, the church at Antioch, the church at Lystra, the church at Derbe. They were all part of the region of Galatia. So as Paul writes this letter, you notice in chapter 1, I think it's in verse 2, he says, to the churches in Galatia. In other words, it would be like to the churches in southeast Wisconsin. So... That's wonderful that there were churches that had spread out in those cities, but when we think about the fact that he's writing specifically about a dangerous problem, it concerns us because that problem was not isolated in one church. That problem had spread throughout a number of churches. And because of that, there was some theological confusion and there was some division uh, within the body of believers in the area of Galatia um, because of this issue that had taken place. And the issue was legalism. Believers who were Jewish by background, they were still clinging uh, to the law. At the very least, they were saying Christ plus the law. They were saying it's wonderful to trust in Christ and and that that's salvation, but you also need to add to it. You need to to adhere to the law as as kind of an add-on to Christ. That was at the best. At the worst, there were people who were still trying to be justified by obedience to the law and and essentially saying that that the law is still, in some effects, more important than Jesus. Now, the reason this was a problem was not only because it's incorrect theologically and not only because it's a misunderstanding of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but they were also demanding at this point, and this is why Paul's writing, that the Gentile believers should also be required to keep the law. Even though Jesus, uh, Paul had preached very clearly Christ alone, that Christ is salvation, that we're saved through faith in Christ, and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, as anybody should boast, that, that, it, that it's all about Jesus Christ. And yet these Jewish believers were saying, well, that's fine, and that's all well and good, but, but you Gentiles... And they're saying this with, a, with an attitude of, of superiority and kind of condescension. You Gentiles, you're lesser than. Remember, we're God's chosen. And, and you really need to keep practicing the law. So, in the book of Galatians, which is just a, a wonderful, deep defense uh, of grace, Paul talks about how Christ has fulfilled the law. How faith in Christ is sufficient because Christ alone, and that's a theme in Galatians, Christ alone produces spiritual freedom and spiritual righteousness in us. He's the one that breaks the chains, as we just sang. And he also says that in Christ, and this is uh, in the earlier chapters, he says in Christ, we're one body, no Jew, no Gentile, there's no distinction anymore because we don't live under the old covenant. Now, God still has plans for Israel, we see that even today, but, but there's no barrier anymore. It's Jew and Gentile, we're all one body together. And he says, as one body, being Jewish, which Paul was, it is not an advantage. 
In other words, in Christ's kingdom, it's not the Jews are up here and the, and the stinking Gentiles are down here and the Jews still can kind of dictate and dominate and the Gentiles are feel lesser than. He says, no, that's not the way it works. We're part of one body, one faith, one Lord. And then if you look at chapter 5, he shifts his writing then. Because of all this, he makes that defense in chapters 1 to 4. In chapter 5, he shifts his writing to talk about life in the Spirit. And the Spirit replaces our effort to obey the law and our effort to try to be righteous. And he infuses in us a righteous nature and a new power and new desires that are based on our relationship with Christ, which has been restored. So in other words, you, you Jewish people, you've strived so hard. The whole Old Testament is about the fact that man can't keep God's law, that man falls far short, that, that everybody is liable, that there's no way to save yourself, there's no way to be God on your own, there's no way to embrace other gods because they're all failures. The only God is God, the only Lord is Jesus, and the only faith is in Him. Now, having established that, The Spirit then comes into our lives, infuses us a new nature and a new heart and a new mind and new desires. And by doing that, by understanding this, and we're going to get to the passage in a second, he removes all pride. Everything where I'd say, well, Paul Rhodes does this and Paul Rhodes does that and Paul Rhodes is a pretty good person and I try hard and I do good things and I don't kill people and and that should be enough. He says, nope, all of that is removed. Any any self-centeredness, any effort on your own, any thought that you can be obedient enough, I'm going to remove that. I'm going to show you your sin, but I'm not going to leave you in your sin. Jesus is going to come to release you from that. And as I release you from that and fill you with my grace and fill you with my presence and fill you with my fruit, now you are going to understand and be so joyful that it is a privilege to be adopted and a privilege to serve me. That's the message of Galatians. Now having established those principles in the first five chapters, chapter 6 which is where we're going to focus a couple verses this morning. This, this would have been because Paul didn't write in chapters, right? Chapter 6. No, this is a personal letter. So he's, he's driving toward the conclusion here. He's like, all right, let's, let's get to the end. Let's get to the application. So chapter 6 is, because of the truths of chapter 1 to 5, because of the fact that the Holy Spirit has now changed us, now, end of the, end of the letter... Now, what does our new life look like? And how does our new life change our relationships? Because when we're walking in the Spirit, we change from proud and self-centered and critical to now loving and sacrificial with hearts that want to strengthen and encourage one another. That's how you can tell that there's a shift in somebody, that they've really been saved because now self doesn't come first. Now giving and sacrifice and love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, that all takes center stage. And this morning, we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, and we're going to see one of the primary ways that this is expressed in the body of Christ. And this is so contrary to, to the tendency of our culture to be selfish and self-absorbed that, that it has to be of the Lord. 
See, I think one of the realities that has been so well masked by the enemy in the last 20 years has now become so obvious in American society, and that is the the viciousness and the perverse prevalence of self. Throughout the years, Christians have been declared intolerant and divisive, but what we're seeing now in the public discourse is so far beyond intolerant and divisive. And Christian, Christianity is, is being suppressed more than we think. Free speech is absolutely under attack, especially and only when it's biblical. And then that, that now, if we keep on this track, free speech is going to be eliminated. I'm not being doomsday here. I'm, I'm just watching the news. And the push for what is rooted in sin and self now is, is openly flaunted. And this will become the norm, even within the church, within five to ten years, if Christians don't take a strong stand for the Lord and a strong stand for the Bible. But one way we can exemplify the gospel, one way we can exemplify the love and grace of God in, in contrast to this, this marked self-absorption in our culture And one way we can convince people of the need for Jesus Christ is to love and care for each other. Now, if you look back at chapter 5, verse 14, I know we haven't read yet, but in chapter 5, 14, Paul says that the whole law is fulfilled in one sentence. Now, think about how, how much that was an affront to the Jews who said, no, the whole law is the five books of the Pentateuch, and we've memorized those, and we have to do all these things and all these rituals. Paul says, uh uh, listen to me. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a Jew of Jews. I studied under Gamaliel. I know what I'm talking about here. That's not the answer. The answer, 514, the whole law is fulfilled in one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what shows. This this is what proves that our lives have been changed. And and that concept's more important than ever. Not only in showing the validity of the gospel as it's changed our lives, but also because of the social epidemic that is present in our society. And this comes from secular authors. The social epidemic is that we are more isolated and more lonely than we've ever been. Now this is ironic because we're so connected, right? We all have our cell phones and you watch in restaurants and airports and malls. Everybody's on their cell at the traffic light. You're on your cell. Even while you're driving, some of you, you're on your cell. Stop that. It's dangerous and I'm going to honk at you. I am. But we're so connected. Two billion people on Facebook. Social media everywhere, Twitter and Snapchat and and all the others. I can't even think of all of them right now because they hurt my brain. All this connection that we supposedly have, but in one 10-second Google search, on the first page alone, I found seven articles about social isolation and loneliness. The New Yorker, September 2013, an article entitled, How Facebook Makes Us Unhappy due to increased feelings of jealousy and envy about the lives of others, which give a sense of negativity that leads to resentment for some of the same reasons we joined it. The Guardian in the UK, April 2014, 
an article called The Age of Loneliness is Killing Us, asserting that loneliness has become an epidemic, especially among young adults and seniors, and that social isolation is as potent a cause of early death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's twice as deadly as obesia. It says that dementia, high blood pressure, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, and suicide are all more prevalent when connections are cut. The American Spectator, May 2014, The Loneliness of American Society, which says that sociologists at Duke found more than 25% of survey respondents said they don't have one person to talk to about their personal failures or triumphs, and that's 50% when you don't include family. Huffington Post, March 2015, loneliness is a growing public health care concern, which says that we live in the age of loneliness and that social media is actually exacerbating the problem because sharing information is not the same as talking and connecting. Forbes, June 2016, an article entitled Chronic Loneliness is a Modern Day Epidemic. The article says that loneliness levels are increasing because, quote, we aren't closely bound. We're no longer living in the same village for generations, which means we don't have the same generational connections. That releases social constraints. Relationships are formed and replaced more easily today. And in 15 years, many face-to-face connections have been replaced with social networking, unquote. The New York Times, December 2016, how social isolation is killing us. Research here shows that social separation disrupts sleep patterns, alters immune systems, and increases inflammation and stress hormones, as well as increasing the risk of heart disease by 28% and stroke by 32%. Forbes, 2017, why millennials are lonely. The article says that the number of Americans with no close friends has tripled since 1995 and that zero is the most common number of confidants. Loneliness appears more prevalent among millennials who are the ones with all the technology. Finally, listen to these trends over the last 25 years. People who attend club meetings down 58%. Family dinners down 43%. Having friends over, down 35%. 2017 Gallup poll found that church membership has dropped from 70% to 55%. That those who attended church in the prior week was only 36%. Those who attend every week is only 26%. Versus those who answered seldom and never, that added up to 48%. And yet, 51% of those responding in that same poll said when they were growing up, they attended church every week. So there's been a generational collapse. I had dinner with my college buddies on Friday night, and I was talking to one of my friends who works in a very large church in the western suburbs of Chicago, three, four, five thousand 5,000 people. And he said, we're noticing a decline in attendance. He said, you wouldn't think in a big church like ours it would really make a difference, but we have started to track it, and now people, instead of coming every week, are choosing to only come one to two times a month. Now that's a lot of information. I threw, I threw a lot of stats at you there. But the point is that even with all the technology and information, even secular sources are saying that we are noticing a decline in, in 
connection. We're noticing a decline uh, in, in people being together. And now isolation is increasing, which means, by, by rule, that if isolation is increasing, that genuine community is decreasing, and that care within that community is rapidly decreasing. Now that's been hurt by, and has also contributed to, the breakdown of the family. And it's been hurt by and contributed to the decline in church involvement, which brings us back to this text. Because God has given us a calling to tell the good news of God's grace. He's given us a calling to bring people into reconciliation with him. And and our need to do that is what the Spirit is teaching us here in Galatians chapter 6. So that was a long introduction that's half the study. Look at chapter 6. Book of Galatians, starting in verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Now, there are five verses here. And they're all about the concept of bearing one another's burdens. And if you're taking notes this morning, there are three distinct ways that the Spirit of God is teaching us about how we can do that. So let's just walk right through the text verse by verse and see what the Spirit of God's teaching us, okay? First of all, in verse 1, he encouraged us to bear one another's burdens when someone is in sin. Now, this is what I'm calling spiritual bearing one another's burdens. This is the spiritual component of it. And notice that he clarifies in verse 1 that it is those who are spiritual, in other words, those who are spiritually mature, who are called to fulfill this role and to, to minister to those people who are in sin. This is a responsibility. If you're growing in the Lord, you're maturing in the Lord, you're walking by faith, not by sight, you're living by the Holy Spirit, this is a responsibility that you and I can't avoid. And that makes sense. It makes sense that he clarify that because you can never lead somebody farther than you've gone yourself, Right? I can't tell you how to climb a, a rock wall and to, and to grab the, the rocks and pull yourself up and get to the top and then belay back down. I can't do that if I can't climb the wall myself. I can stand there and go, I think you should do that, but I have no experience doing it. So how are we going to deal with someone who's stuck in sin if we haven't conquered it ourselves? If we're not walking by the Spirit, how can we talk to somebody about living by the Spirit? So if we're immature, we don't have that experience and that integrity to help someone stuck in sin. But listen, Paul's very clear here. That maturity is not to be a source of pride. It's not to say, well, yeah, I've been saved 42 years and I'm way more mature than you and I'm a pastor and I went to seminary and you know what, let me, let me handle it. You, you're not quite as far along. May God forbid that we ever utter that sense or even think that thought. 
This is exactly what Paul's talking about. He says, listen now, you who are mature in the Lord have a responsibility, but don't let that go to your head. And then he says, here are three essentials for, uh, for ministering to someone who's caught in sin. All right, right here in the verse, look at it. First essential is to restore. The goal is to encourage repentance and have people get right with the Lord. Then as they're restored to the Lord by His grace, then they need to be restored in the body. The goal when someone is in sin is not to embarrass them and marginalize them and remove them. It's to make it right. When I'm dealing with people in sin, when I'm dealing with couples that are struggling, my goal is not to say, well, you're a horrible person and this isn't going to work out and and there's no possibilities. My goal is to say, repent, get right with the Lord, be restored in your relationship. So restore. Second, he says, do it with a spirit of gentleness. We're not to be harsh and judgmental. We'll see why in a minute. But in order to act like Christ and to bring about healing and restoration, there has to be a a Christ-centered, spirit-filled, grace-controlled atmosphere. So when you're dealing with someone who's really stuck in sin, it's not to say, oh, you're so horrible, I can't believe what you're doing, and how dare you, and and, and I'm so much farther. Listen, none of that. It's just, listen... The goal now is to get you right with the Lord. The goal is to get this relationship with the Lord restored. And and I want to help you. I want to come alongside you. I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you because Christ is sufficient. Look, I was in sin and I still struggle with sin and God's sufficient. How much different of an atmosphere is that? And then third, and this goes along with it, he kind of buries the lead. He says, be humble. Be aware of your own sin before you start pointing fingers at somebody else. Remember how you've been rescued by God's grace. Listen, when you think about God's grace every day, and when you wake up and say, God, I'm so glad for another day of breath, and I can't believe you saved me, and God, I'm so grateful. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for setting me free from sin. Thank you for breaking those chains we sang about on Sunday. And God, just be with me today. Holy Spirit, thank you for indwelling me. Teach me by your word. Oh, Lord, I call on your name. Listen, when we start talking like that, what does that do? That prevents any, I am so much better than everybody else. Remember the Pharisee and the publican? I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Oh, my word. Good gravy. Look at that guy. And what's the publican say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When that's our heart, then when we're dealing with a person that's stuck in sin, we're not going to be proud and critical and condescending. You've got to get your act together like we've got our act together. So Paul says, spiritual encouragement. When you confront somebody, and I use that word carefully, when you confront somebody else about sin, it's essential that we carefully but directly help them understand the nature of the burden that's on their life and the absolute need to remove it. Romans 6 says that we're freed forever from the bondage of sin because of the death and resurrection of Christ. And then when we trust him to save us, we're no longer slaves to sin. What are we? We're slaves to tell me, 
righteousness. Not under bondage, not, not my chains are still wrapped around me. The song says what? My chains are gone, I've been set free. Right? Because, because I'm not under bondage anymore, which is why he says later, don't, don't walk back into the cell. You've been freed. Live in freedom. Not as an abuse of grace, but live in freedom. Now, turn over. Keep your place here. Turn over to Hebrews 12 just for a sec. Hebrews chapter 12, just over a couple pages. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. Familiar verses, but I want to read these, and then we're going to keep our place here and go back to Galatians. Think about what we've just talked about, about ministering to people spiritually. He says, therefore, verse 1, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we studied this in middle school Wednesday night, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, of our faith. What's that saying? That's saying that we who have been saved by his grace, we who know the feeling of the weight and the penalty of sin being lifted off of us and removed forever, now we who know that are called to tell others about that freedom and to say to people that are still trapped in sin, you can know and experience the power of God's grace. I want to say that to you this morning. If you are trapped in sin, let me tell you, you can know and experience the power of God's grace. He can break those chains. We sang it over and over and over again this morning. Break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. That that applies to your life. If you're under bondage to sin this morning, God can break those chains. He can free you forever. If you're under a bondage to worry and fear, He can break those chains. We're going to pray at the end. If you're under bondage to, to some kind of uh, thing that is holding you back from walking in faith, He can break that chain. But you've got to release it to Him. And then once you do, you run you run, you run, you lay aside those weights. You don't allow them to creep back in. You resist them and you keep running toward Jesus who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, go back to Galatians. Let's the second principle real quick. First, we're called to bear one another's burdens when someone's in sin. Second, we're called to bear one another's burdens in order to fulfill the law of Christ. This is what I'm calling relational bearing one another's burdens. Now again, Galatians is written to counteract the prevailing legalistic mindset that's, that's throughout Galatia. And the Galatian Jews are trying to, to, to show their ability as law keepers. They're pressuring the Gentiles to do the same. But, but that was going to be even more of a failing proposition than their forefathers in the Old Testament. Because now Christ has come and said, I fulfilled the law and there's now a new covenant. You're under the old covenant, which is trying to fulfill the law and you couldn't do that. So now there's a new covenant in my blood. And that replaces the old covenant. That's why it's called new. And the new covenant is that you trust in me and I change you. You trust in me and I, I move your nature from sin 
to righteousness. I bring you out of bondage into freedom. I give you a new heart, a new mind, a new nature, new desires, and I put my Holy Spirit in there to seal it. Now the Galatian Jews weren't, weren't grabbing onto that. And he says, now here's how we're going to know that you're living under the new covenant. Because Jesus himself said the most profound way to fulfill the law is to live out two of the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if you really want to show that you have been changed, then you will love others. And verse 2, you'll bear one another's burdens. And verse 3, your pride will be reduced because you will know you are worthless without Christ, but because of Christ you are very precious because of his grace. And there is no way at that point, when you really understand Christ, there's no way you can argue your spiritual resume. There's no way you can promote yourself and say, yes, but. There's no yes, but with Christ. And that shows out, look at verse 2, in a real spiritual and emotional care for the other person. Now, there are so many ways we could talk for hours. There are so many ways that we can exemplify this in our redeemed lives. But, but let me just mention three very quickly that I believe bear us making a very conscious effort to practice it every day. Number one, we need to joyfully anticipate and seek ways to serve and bless others. We need to joyfully anticipate and seek ways to serve and bless others. It goes without saying that this should take place in the body, but how much more in our marriages and our families? As if our homes are weak and our marriages are fractured, we can't possibly minister within the body with any degree of integrity. But if we are sacrificially serving our spouses and our kids and our parents, there will be tremendous power and tremendous influence even here at church. So I want to encourage you, actively, actively anticipate someone else's needs. Actively seek new ways to meet those needs before they become obvious. This is, this is an art form, and I love it. What are they going to need before they ask for it? What are they going to need before they even recognize that they need it? And then, not to, not to, oh, okay, I'll make you coffee again. But to be gracious and sacrificial and minister. Come on, that's what this is about, right? Bear one another's burdens. That making coffee is not a burden, but it sure can be an act of love. Something simple. How does, how does my wife like her coffee? Not just, here it's black, put the cream in yourself. No, I want to I get it to just that color that Julie likes. Just like melted coffee ice cream. There's so much cream and sweet loan there. I'm like, it's just, that, just melt some ice cream. It's the same thing. But that, listen, if I bring her coffee, this is so simple. If I bring her coffee and it's just like she likes what does that say? I took the time to think about it, to prepare it, to care for you before you even asked. That's verse 2. Oh, if we do that in our homes, our marriages are going to change. If we do that for our kids, 
Son, what do you need? We're going down to see Jacob tonight to take him some extra supplies and have dinner with him. And I'm trying to think, what, what does he need? What, what has he not asked for that I could provide for him tonight? I encourage you to, to really think about this because it's really easy to act selfishly, right? It's easy to build resentment. Why don't they get their own coffee? Why don't they take out the trash? Why don't they do the dishes? I'm talking about basic everyday stuff here, right? There's trash. Why didn't the kids take out the trash? They were asked to take out the trash. I'm not enabling them, but maybe I'm just going to take out the trash and ease that burden. Say, well, you're spoiling them. No, I don't think so. Because I'm still going to make them take out the trash. But maybe this one time, listen now, I'm serious. Maybe this one time I can minister to my kids. Maybe this one time I can minister to my spouse. Maybe this one time I can minister in the body when somebody's hurting and instead of walking by or instead of saying, I'll pray for you. Bye. Let me pray for you right now. Oh, it's awkward. Oh, what am I going to say? Listen, the Lord will give you the words. If your heart's right, you don't have to worry about what you're going to pray. Just start talking to the Lord. This is bearing one another's burdens. So, I spent too long on that point. We need to joyfully anticipate, seek ways to serve and bless others. Number two, we need to react and minister through help and encouragement. When you see someone worn down physically, emotionally, financially, be quick to earnestly pray for them and be quick to ask the Lord to help them. We're going to do that at the end. We're going to have people up here. You need prayer. You're going to come up. We're going to pray for you. Don't be proud. You need help. You need somebody to come along, put a little arm around you, and you may not even know them. Just say, I'm going to pray for you. And we need to be quick. Listen now to ask, how can I help out? How can I ease your stress? What can I do to minister to you? What can I do to edify you and encourage you and strengthen you? Because our responsibility and our privilege as members of the body is to build up and strengthen each other. And then third, we need to be courageous. We need to be courageous to speak truth and love. And to call people to greater faith when they're fearful and worried and not relying on Him. To say, listen, in love I need to tell you, you need to trust the Lord more. And I'm not saying this arrogantly like I have faith figured out. I'm just saying when you trust the Lord, He's sufficient. So let me encourage you, brother. Let me encourage you, sister. You need to trust Jesus more. Let's, let's pray that right now. That you're going to trust Him more. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Now again, that can only be birthed from our own maturity and our own deep faith. But there will be times when we have to lovingly, this is verse 2, we have to lovingly challenge people to lay aside their burdens and to rise to a new level of dependence on the Lord. Because how many know that we're never disappointed when we trust in the Lord? Never, ever, ever. So we bear one another's burdens spiritually. We bear one another's burdens relationally. Third and last, verses four to five. We're to bear one another's burdens by fulfilling our responsibility to serve within the body. This is ministry bearing one another's burdens. Verse four, look at it, says we're to examine our own work. Not only for spiritual consistency, but for practical faithfulness. The New Testament talks hundreds of times 
about sharing in the work of ministry. It even says that you and I are co-laborers in Christ. That means every single person should have an active role, no matter what your age, no matter what your job, no matter what your schedule. And really, and I want to be very careful in how I say this, the fact is that no church should ever lack for people to serve. Just as no church should ever lack for the financial resources to do the work of ministry. And I'm going to tell you, I've worked in churches of 30, and I've worked in churches of 4,000. This is not a small church problem. We don't keep asking for volunteers for positions because we don't have 1,000 people, and when you're a smaller church, it's hard to get people. Trust me, even big churches struggle with this. In fact, I know churches, 1,200, 1,400, that'll shut down ministry in the summer because they can't get people to help. We're never going to do that. The problem is, if you look back at verse 5, is that we haven't always fulfilled each one will bear his load. That's not a suggestion. It's not, well, if it fits my availability and my desires and my comfort level, it's a command, and it is a crucial part of bearing one another's burdens within the body of Christ. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one. Why? Because there's a good return for their labor. If one falls, the other can pick them up, and a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. The principle is that as co-laborers in Christ, we are able to support one another and serve and do his work faithfully. So when one is struggling, or somebody has to take time off, like this fall, we have six people involved in children's ministry who can't serve. They moved away, they're busy, there's some kind of issue. So, so now we need others to step in and bear the burden. And when Christ is at the center, and this is the point of verse 5, when Christ is at the center of our attitude and our effort, that when he's that third chord in the middle, the work of ministry is powerful and unbreakable. Listen, last week I was gone. Our family took Jacob down to Wheaton, and we all needed a Sunday off. We went to Chicago Tabernacle and saw some old friends. We're blessed down there. But I didn't have to worry because I knew that Tony would study hard. I knew that he would preach well, and weren't we so blessed by the word the Lord gave him last week. It was such a blessing. And Adam and Tony did great leading worship, and you guys sang like you never have before, and our prayer band faithfully met to ask the Lord to bless the service, and our ushers and greeters joyfully met guests and members, and our teachers and assistants ministered to our kids. Why? Because that's the body of Christ in action. Bearing the load for the cause of Christ. You know, when I was thinking about titles for this message, it's kind of a fun little game with me. I, I decided to call it Grin and Bear It. Now, usually when we say Grin and Bear It, it's like, oh, I got to go over to my in-laws. Oh, going to smile. They're going to make that casserole again. I think it's horrible. I got to have a bite of that. I got to go to the dentist. Sometimes we cringe because we have to do things out of obligation. But when I chose that title, I meant it very seriously because I want to emphasize that it is an absolute joy to do this for each other.
It is an absolute joy to bear one another's burdens. Why? Because in doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. In doing so, we lead people closer to Christ. We influence them by showing his grace, and we strengthen them in their faith and their spiritual maturity. And by doing that, what are we doing? We're honoring Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate example of this principle. You kept your finger, I hope, in Hebrews 12. If you didn't, turn back there for a minute, because I want to read the end of the verse. As you're turning, I'll read, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now look at the last three lines. Who for the what? Joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Say it again. For the what? Joy. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross for you and me. He took all of the burden. All of the sin of Paul Rhodes. A filthy creature with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sins. A rebellious heart. A, a wrong mind, a wrong spirit. He died for me. He went to the cross with all that burden on him and he endured it and he didn't do it angry and frustrated and muttering under his breath. That stinking Paul Rhodes. For the joy that was set before him. So one day in 1974, Paul Rhodes would become my child and I would adopt him and I would change his nature and I would put a calling on his life and I would use him, I pray, to minister to people and to be my disciple. That is what Christ did. So how can we, who have been changed by his grace, do anything but follow his example? Bear one another's burdens, not... How can I minister to you? How can I bless you? How can I strengthen you? How can I pray for you? How can I stoke your faith? How can I lead you to maturity? Because it is a joy. It is a joy to serve you. That's what we're called to. Let's ask him to help us.